Let's turn to the Word of God this morning. And kids, you are going to stay in here with us because today is a family Sunday. And you've got to be in here as you are every week to worship with us, and that's wonderful. And now you're going to get to continue worshiping by hearing God speak to us through His Word. Now, I have a, a question for the kids. Kids, we are studying, we've been in a series, so adults don't help anybody help them out, because hopefully you know. Kids, we're doing a series in here. This is our eighth week in a series, and we're studying the second book of the Bible. Anybody know what the second book of the Bible is? You can yell it out. What is it? Exodus. Exodus. That's right. We are doing a series in the book of Exodus, and today you are going to get to hear the story of Exodus, get caught up to where we are, and to help you remember everything today, I have a treat bag up here for you. So kids, if you'd like to come up to the front, come grab one of these awesome little treat bags. I've got some Chex Mix, which happens to be my favorite uh, treat ever, so maybe I'm going to take some Chex Mix from somebody. No, just kidding. We've got a note card in here. We've got a coloring page and crayons, so everybody grab one of these. Here you go. I'll hand you one. Okay, everybody get one so you've got it. And take it back to your seat and get that note page out. You've got a sermon note sheet, and I'm going to give you things to write on there today and things to draw, and you've got a coloring page as well. So everybody grab one of those. You're welcome. Very nice. All right. They're all the same. You can just grab whichever one you want. Yeah. All right. Very good. Ooh, looks like I've got two Chex Mix left. That's exciting for me later. Okay. Today, like I said, is our eighth week in the series, and the title of our message this morning is The God Who Will. The God Who Will. So kids, as you're getting your paper out right there, at the top of your page it says title of sermon. That's what you want to write today is The God Who Will will. Parents, you may need to help them remember that or help them write that out, but I'll encourage you to do that this morning. If you have your Bible today, kids or adults, I'll encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at the text today. We're going to get to chapter 6 in just a moment, but I want to get us all caught up and, and do a little refresh for the kids. This is the first time you're hearing it in this series, though I'm sure some of you know some of these stories already. And for adults, it's always good for us to kind of refresh where we are and to hear again the story. And in fact, the text we're going to look at today is a lot of reminder on the part of God. We'll get there in just a few minutes, but let me catch everyone up. Kids, you may already know parts of this story, but listen up so you understand what's been happening in the story of Exodus and what we are about to see in the text when we get to chapter 6. If you recall, if you've been here throughout this series, the book of Exodus starts out by telling us that all of the major figures from the first book of the Bible, men like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they're all dead. The story has moved on from them. They've all been dead and buried. And in fact, when Exodus starts, the events of Exodus start hundreds of years after their story. Exodus starts out by telling us that now there's a bunch of problems that have developed for the people of God. They'd moved to Egypt, and they had gone there as respected guests and settlers, and they were invited in and shown great honor. But that was when Joseph was alive. And now that Joseph's dead, and the leaders have changed, and there's a new Pharaoh, a new king of Egypt... Well, 400 years have passed, and the people of Israel are now slaves in Egypt. And they're being forced to do hard labor to serve the Egyptians, who now don't love them and respect them and want them to be in their country. They fear them and hate them. And the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh that's alive at this time, is a particularly horrible and evil 
ruler. Now, kids, how many of you know some of the story of Moses? Let me see. Show of hands. Do you know anything about Moses? You heard that name? You've heard? Okay. So you probably know some of the story of Moses, at least. You know Moses was born at a really dangerous time. The evil Pharaoh who was alive and in charge, he wanted to kill God's people. But God rescued Moses through placing him in a basket. I've got a little picture of a baby in a basket right there. Moses was put in a basket just like that, and he was placed into the Nile River to be kept safe. Now, that doesn't sound like a safe place to put a baby, right? But God was working through this, and what God caused to happen when Moses was placed in the basket in the Nile River is that he was actually found and adopted by none other than one of the Pharaoh's daughters, a princess of Egypt. So Moses, as we know, gets to grow up in the palace. This guy, this king ruler of Egypt who wanted to kill the people of Israel is now raising Moses in his own house. That's the power of God. But Moses, even though he grew up in Pharaoh's house, never forgot that he really wasn't an Egyptian. He was one of God's people. He was an Israelite. His ancestors were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that was his people. He was one of the special family of God that God had chosen to bless the whole world back in the book of Genesis. But when Moses, knowing that he was an Israelite, tried to rescue his people from the slavery that they were facing, all on his own power, all in his own timing, well, it didn't work out very well. Moses sins and actually murders an Egyptian, and he flees. He runs away to the wilderness in Midian to hide and spends 40 years there trying to start a new, different life. And it's in the wilderness where Moses, as we've talked about just a few weeks ago, hears God call out to him in a really special an amazing way. Kids, question for you. What did Moses see in the wilderness where God called out and spoke to him? Does anyone remember? Summer, what was it? A burning bush. Not just any burning bush, but a bush that was burning and not stopping, right? It kept burning. The fire kept going. It wasn't burning up the bush. It didn't get rid of the whole bush. It kept burning. So there's a picture of a burning bush. This is what Moses saw in the wilderness, and it drew Moses' attention. He said, what is going on with this bush that's burning and not stopping? And he went to see it, and there God spoke to him. At the burning bush, Moses learns that God knows everything that's happening. God is holy. That means he's set apart, means he's different. He's greater than everything else. And God told Moses that he was coming to rescue his people, the people of Israel, and that Moses had a part to play in this plan that God had. And so at the burning bush, God also reveals to Moses something incredibly important about who God is. He reveals his personal covenantal name to Moses. Now, kids, how many of you have your own Bibles? You have your own Bibles? Good. Awesome. How many of you get to read your own Bible? Do you read it sometimes? Awesome. Good. Yes. So if you have your own Bible and you read in the Old Testament, something like the book of Exodus, you're going to see something in the Bible that I want to explain to you is like a code, something that you can look for and know there's a little bit of a code here every time you read it. You want to know what the code is? Yeah, okay. So in your Bible, you're going to see the words, the Lord. Go ahead and put that up there for me. And they're going to look a little bit different. It's going to be the word, the, and then L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. If you've ever seen that in your Bible, kids or adults, what that is is actually a code for the name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. 
when the word Lord is written in all caps like that, what it means is in the original language, the Hebrew language that Moses wrote these things in, he actually wrote this special covenant name of God there. But the Jewish people a really long time ago thought the name of God must be so holy and so special that we don't even want to pronounce it. We don't even want to say it. And so they substituted it with a code word. The code word in Hebrew is Adonai, which means Lord. And so in English translations, what we have done is we've kind of followed that tradition and put the Lord where Moses actually wrote these four special letters, what we call the Tetragrammaton, these four letters, Y-H-W-H. The name of God is Yahweh. You were going to say that. You knew that. The name of God is Yahweh. These four special letters that are there. So anytime you see this in the Bible, if you're reading the book of Exodus or Jesus, yeah, love Jesus, don't we? If you see that anywhere in the Bible, the Lord with all caps there, then you know the name Yahweh is really what Moses wrote down. And there's a code there for you to figure it out. So when we read in the scripture, adults, you may have noticed this in the last few weeks, if you've been following along in your own uh, Bible in front of you, you've noticed that I have read the text and I have said the name Yahweh, and I've put on the screen Y-H-W-H, where that is what Moses originally wrote. In your Bible, it would read the Lord in all capital letters there, but I've been un unpacking that for us to draw us back to what Moses originally said was, this is the name of God, Yahweh. And it's important, I think, for us to see that. The reason it's so important to know the name Yahweh is what the name Yahweh means. Anyone know what the name Yahweh means? What does it mean? Nope, doesn't mean the Lord. It means something else. How about some adults? Anyone know what the name Yahweh means? I mean, I told you just a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> I am. Thank you. It means I am. Yahweh means I am. Now, that's kind of a funny name, isn't it? To say, I am, what that means when God says, I am, is he means, I am who I am. There's nobody else like me. You can't look at anything else and say, well, God is like this guy over here. God is like this thing over here. Or, hey, there's a whole bunch of gods, and God's like one of those gods. No, God says, I am the only God. I'm the only one like me. I'm the only one who's holy. I'm the only one who has all knowledge. I'm the only one who has all power. I'm the only one who can do the things that I have said I will do. I am the only God. He's totally, completely unique, one of a kind. But even after Moses learns all these amazing things from God at the burning bush and this special name of God, Yahweh, he gets to hear that. Moses is still really afraid whenever God tells him what he wants him to go and do. In fact, Moses doesn't want to go do the things God told him to go do. He's afraid and scared. He thinks they're too hard. Have any of you ever felt like God's asked you to do something that's really hard? Been scared to do something difficult? Scared that you might fail? Kids and adults, let's all answer that. Put your hand up if you've ever been scared to do something God's asked you to do. Wow. Kids, look around. All these adults in here have, have been scared at times too, just like you have been. Moses was scared the same way we are. He was scared to fail. He was struggling to trust God. But God had chosen Moses. And listen, when God chooses someone to do something, they can because God will help them do it. When God wants something done, it will be done because God is God. And he's in control of all things. He's sovereign over all things. 
So Moses, eventually, he goes back to Egypt. He's going to go tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, just like God wants him to do. But when he does, things get even more difficult and even more disappointments settle in. This is what we talked about last week. Pharaoh says, no, I will not let God's people go. And he increases the labor of the people of Israel. He makes them work harder and longer. And God had told Moses Pharaoh was going to do that. Pharaoh was not going to listen the first time. Pharaoh was going to, to make life difficult for them. But Moses didn't like exactly how hard it had gotten. He didn't like how it felt. He didn't like how the people were not trusting God the way he thought they should. He was struggling to trust God the way he thought they should. So these difficulties, these disappointments lead to distrust and people struggling to believe God and maybe even thinking, well, maybe God was lying when he said he was going to come set us free and save us. Listen to what Moses says to God. The verse we ended with last week, adults, the end of Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now question, kids, do you think that's the way we should talk to God? What do you think? No, no, no. You're absolutely right. That's not how we should talk to God. Moses is sinning here. Moses was a sinner just like you, just like me, just like everyone else in this room. And sometimes Moses got things wrong. That's good news because Moses is a pretty important guy, isn't he? But he still was a sinner and he still made mistakes. He's doubting God here. He's thinking and feeling like, you know, I don't think God is trustworthy or good or able to fulfill the promise that he gave me. It's okay for us to be disappointed. It's okay for us to feel frustrated at times. But we should always remember that God has a plan, and his plan may be different than what we prefer or what we thought the plan was going to be. But God is always good, and he always does what is best, and we should always honor him and respect him. So when Moses says to God, you have not delivered your people at all out of distrust with God, that's a sin. You and I can ask God why. Is this so difficult? Why is this taking longer? But we have to trust God knows best, and he will do what he says. See, Moses just didn't see the deliverance right away, and he didn't feel like God had met his expectations. So he responds in sinful doubt and accusation. And God could have responded to Moses with anger, because here's Moses, this little finite guy. He's frail and very sinful and 80 years old at this point, and he could have just said, Moses, I'm tired of you objecting to my plans. I'm tired of you complaining. I'm tired of you not following me. I'm done, and I'm angry. I'm going to punish you. But instead, God very graciously replies to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. Look at verse 1. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I'm going to do. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God tells Moses he's about to do something amazing, and we're going to see that in the next couple weeks. Now, unfortunately, I think the, the ESV translation here isn't quite as clear as I wish it was to the original language. What was the original language the Hebrew was written? The, oh, I just hit the answer. What was the old, original language the Old Testament was written in? Hebrew. Yeah, okay. All right, good. Well, at least you were listening. Hebrew. What the original language actually says is brought out a little more clearly in the New American Standard translation where it says this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, 
For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. What God's telling Moses here at the start in this verse here is that he, God, is going to work. He is going to do something to Pharaoh. He's going to compel Pharaoh to let the people go. He's going to compel Pharaoh to even drive the people out of his land, in fact. This means God is going to force Pharaoh to do what God wants done. And he can do that because he's God. And Pharaoh is not. Now, the adults should remember in here a few weeks ago when we were in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, God told Moses this was the plan, right? In fact, he even said, this will need to take place. I will need to exercise my might, my power, and I will do it. Remember Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. God is speaking when he says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And here again, then, in the start of Exodus chapter 6, God's reminding Moses once again, I am going to do this. I sent you to be my messenger. I've sent you to do signs and wonders. But Moses, you're not alone. You are not the one who's going to be able to accomplish this. I will stretch out my hand as God and make it happen. Here's the key point for today. Here's the big idea. Kids, you can write this down in your note sheet. We're going to come back to it several times today. Here's the big thing I want you to get. God will do what he says he will do. God will do what he says he will do. Like I said earlier, God is not the same as us. He's not like us. Sometimes, all of us in this room could agree, maybe it's a lot of time, we do not do what we say we will do. Sometimes we won't do something because we actually can't do it. We, we don't have the ability or the strength or the resources or the knowledge to actually do what it is we said we were going to do. We just simply can't. We're limited. Sometimes we are stopped from doing what we say we will do because of things we can't control. Maybe you've said to someone, I will be there at this time, at this place, but then your car breaks down, <laughs> and you can't get there, right? You can't control everything, and so sometimes we can't do what we said we will do because we can't control everything. We don't have that power. Sometimes we don't do what we say we'll do because we simply forget. None of us have perfect memories. Most of us have worse memories than we want to admit. Sometimes we say we'll do something. But then because we've said that and we weren't being really careful with our words and we really didn't understand how important doing what we say is, we just forget to do the thing we said. We're not trying to, to not do it. We just kind of forgot we said we were going to do it. That happens. And sometimes we don't do what we say we will do because we're sinful liars. And we say we're going to do something when we know we're not going to. We don't want to have a conflict. We don't want to let someone down or whatever else it may be. And so we say, yes, I will do that thing, but then we don't because we're sinful and we lie. And that's true of all of us in this room at times. You've done that. So there's a lot of different reasons why sometimes we don't do the things we say that we will do. But God's not like that. God never lies. God never forgets anything he's ever said. God's never stopped because of something outside of his control. Everything's in his control. And God has never not been able to do what he said because he lacks strength or knowledge or ability. He's got all of that perfectly, so he will always do what he said he will do.
That's something important for each of us to remember, young or old. And over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, God actually keeps reminding his people of that with words telling them, here is what I'm going to do, and then with actions proving, I will do what I said I will do. It's a theme that runs all throughout the book. He tells them what will happen, then he makes it happen. And in Exodus 6, in response to Moses' prayer of self-pity and questioning God, notice here how he's going to respond in these next few verses. Yahweh doesn't argue with Moses. He doesn't go, Moses, here's all the details that, that you're just not seeing. He simply reminds Moses he will do what he has said he will do. Listen to verses 2 to 8. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them in the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am. Yahweh. What, what God does in these verses here is he simply reminds Moses of everything that he's already told him before. He reminds Moses, my name is Yahweh. I'm the I am, not the I was going to do something. I might be like this in the future. I am, he says, I am the one and only God, the one who never changes, the one who never makes mistakes, who never says the wrong thing, who never fails to do what I have said I will do. He says, I am Yahweh, the only true God. And seven times in these verses here, God tells Moses, I will do what I said I will do. Seven times that phrase shows up, I will. Not, Moses, this may happen. Moses, you will. God says, I will. He promises, I will do what I have said I will do. So God tells Moses, your job, Moses, is to now go and remind the people of Israel of these things. And so Moses, this time, obeys, and he goes. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, we read, Moses spoke thus, meaning he said all these things to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Here's the most tragic response anyone can ever have to the word of God. The amazing words of promise and power and God's plans for the future and what he says I'm about to do. The people hear all of those things and they don't listen. They don't believe. And it tells us here in this text it's because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery that they are in. The people are just struggling, as we said last week, to believe God because of a difficult circumstance, difficult situations, and their personal disappointments. God, we thought you were coming to save us, and we thought that'd be fast, and we thought that'd be easy, and we thought that'd be fun, and it wasn't. It was taking longer than we want, and it's hard, and things even seem like they got worse in the midst of this, and they're disappointed with God, and so they wallow and stay in self-pity, 
and they try self-reliance. We'll go solve the problem. We'll go talk to Pharaoh. That doesn't work either. They sinned by not surrendering to God and living as a person set free by the word of God should live. As I said last week, the people of Israel continued to live as slaves to their sin and their situation. And that happens to us today too. Kids, it can happen to you when you face situations that are scary, things that are new, things that are difficult or disappointing to you. You have to learn how to trust God and turn to God with questions and with your hurts and learn to trust him. Like I said earlier, we can always be honest with God. We can always ask God to show us, what are you doing in the midst of this, God? What would you want to teach me through your word about what I'm supposed to be doing right now? You can always ask that prayer, no matter how difficult or how disappointed you may be. You can always come talk to me if you want to, and I'll help you understand what the Word of God says. We'll open up the Bible together, and we will discuss what God says to you and what he has for your life. Teens and adults, this is obviously true for us too. The things we said last week still apply to this week, maybe even more so. Don't live like a slave to your sin. Don't respond to difficulties and disappointments with sinful old nature types of behavior. God has come to set his people free. So let's live in that freedom. Let's engage with one another. Let's be honest. Let's fight for unity in the body, not division. Let's humble ourselves and hear from God. Let's know that he has a purpose for us, a calling for us, a mission for us as a people together to move forward in and glorify God in. Remember, our key point. What's our key point, kids? What's the main thing I want you to take away from this? What is it? Yeah, Marsha was listening. She was on top of it. God, here we go. Put it up there again. Let's all read it together on the count of three. One, two, three. God will do what he says he will do. God will do what he says he will do. We must always remember that. If we believe that and we remember that in our difficulties and in our hardships, it will lead to very different responses than what we will do if we doubt God or we let those disappointments crush us and break our spirits like it did the Israelites. But let's all admit together, this is hard to do because we're all sinners. And the Israelites, like I said last week, were enslaved to Egypt, but you and I are enslaved Today, too, by our sinful nature, we're born as slaves to sin. That's what Jesus says in John 8, 38. That's where we all start. And we all need rescue, what the Bible calls redemption, in order to be saved. And God proved his power over Pharaoh and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And God also has proved his power over sin by delivering Christians from the power of sin by the cross where Jesus died. So if we're a Christian today... God has set us free. Those who trust in him and have faith in him to be their savior, we are not slaves to sin anymore. We have struggles with that old nature, but it's not holding us captive. We're freed from our slavery to sin. And now, as we sang this morning, we are sons and daughters of God. We've been set free. So we should live in that freedom. Listen to this text, Galatians 4, 4 to 7 from the New Testament. Here's what Paul writes. But when the fullness of time had come, so, so when God knew it was the exact right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent, his, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, listen to this, so you, Christian, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The greatest act of salvation was not the exodus. With all the powerful plagues and miracles that take place, as amazing as all those things were, and we're going to talk about them in the next couple weeks, that's not the greatest saving work God's ever done. The greatest blessing of salvation was not the blessing he gave to Israel of giving them this rich and beautiful land of Canaan to be their own country. That's not the greatest blessing of salvation. The greatest work of salvation is that God sent his son, Jesus, to be born on this earth with a real mother and a real human body like you and I living in a real broken place with sinful people all around him too. Jesus lived under the law just like you and I do. All the commands of God saying do this and don't do this, Jesus had to obey all of those things too. But Jesus did it all perfectly. The thing you and I could never do. Jesus lived without sin, without ever doing any of the things that you and I do that make us unworthy and unrighteous. Jesus never lied. Jesus was never selfish. He never betrayed anyone. He never let anger or disappointment or hatred seethe in his heart. He never disobeyed or distrusted God the Father at all. Jesus was perfect and sinless. So he alone could stand before God and be perfectly accepted and welcomed into the blessing of eternal fellowship with God. But Jesus didn't come to earth to get those blessings for himself. Jesus is God. He's always been God. From eternity past, he's always had perfect, unbroken communion and fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. When he came here and earned the right to enter into that, it wasn't for him, it was for us. That you and I could now have perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus for all eternity. He came so that we could be adopted into the family. He came to give us all the blessings that only he deserves that you and I have forfeited a long, long time ago. He came to take away our sins and to cover us up with his perfections, what we call the great exchange. Jesus took all the bad, all the sin from us and gives us all the good and all the righteousness that he has. Jesus accomplished this by dying in our place through his body being broken and beaten and hung upon a cross, through his blood being shed, his life ending so that you and I could start truly living. And that's what we're going to do today to end is we're going to celebrate that great gift. That's what taking the Lord's Supper is really all about. It's about remembering God's words and his promises to save his people. It's about trusting in his actions that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be saved. It's about knowing God has done what God said he would do. So this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to ask two of our church members to come and serve us this morning. Caleb and Jason, if you will come. They're going to distribute the elements to us this morning. Worship team, if you would come. And Wendy, you can just begin to play for a moment as we get the elements and we prepare to take them. You guys can go ahead and begin to serve us this morning. And I want to remind us, there's, for this church, there's no requirement to be a member of this particular church to take the Lord's Supper with us, but you must be a Christian. You must believe in Jesus Christ. This must be more to you than just bread and just a cup of juice. 
If you're not a, a Christian yet, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never prayed and placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, then don't take these things today. They won't save you. Parents, you today with, with your kids, there's no age limit on this, so Julia will take communion today for the first time. I couldn't be more proud. Parents, if your kids haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, this is your responsibility today to disciple them in that. Explain to them what this means and why. They can't take it now, but how they could take it if they would repent and trust in Jesus Christ. These items remind us of the greatest act of salvation that ever has accomplished. It's not a snack. This isn't an empty ritual that we just do sometimes in the church calendar throughout the year. These things remind Christians that God sent his son to die to save his people. And that God does save his people just as he said he would do. Jesus died for sinners like us. That we could be made sons and daughters of God. No longer slaves to sin. And all of God's people today, from the youngest of us to the oldest, can be made heirs. The ones who receive the blessings and the privileges of being part of the family of God. As we trust in him. And this text we read tells us that, that you and I were, were given the Holy Spirit when we are saved to live within us, to change us, and to remind us of God's promises day by day and understand how he fulfills them. His work is to open our hearts and our ears to hear God speak to us today through his word, the Bible. All of these things are made possible by the death of Jesus, by him dying for us and us believing and trusting in him to do what we can never do, to do the things that we could never accomplish on our own. The gospel is that Jesus has done it all. And God has fulfilled his promise. He's done what he said he will do. So take the piece of bread this morning and hold it in your hand. And hear the word of the Lord read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 20 to 26. For I have received, Paul says, from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you take this bread in your hand this morning, understand, Christ came in a real human body, and he lived the perfect life of obedience that you and I have failed to live. He did what we could not do. Let's take the bread together. Now take the cup and look at this. It's juice this morning. But Jesus, in the same way, after supper, took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup represents for us not just juice. It represents the way in which we are saved, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that his life was given to save you from your anger, your pride, your idolatry, your selfishness, your deceit, your lying, all the rest of your sins. It cost the blood of Christ to cover those things. And right now, as we repent of those things and lay them down and refuse to pick them back up when we walk out of here, we can find the freedom that the blood of Jesus Amen. has bought for us. Let's take the cup together. Before we leave, we're going to sing. 
And we're going to thank God for who he is and his word and this great act of salvation that he has accomplished. The fact that he knows each one of us, our names, our struggles, our weaknesses. And yet Jesus still went to the cross. Knowing how broken and how messed up you are and how many times you would fail, he went and he did exactly what he promised to do. So we're going to worship him today. Would you stand with me this morning and pray with me that God would open our hearts to worship him truly and fully in these moments we have. Lord, we thank you for your great love and power. And God, we thank you for this truth that we focused in on today, that you will do what you have said you will do. You've proven this to be true time and time again. And the ultimate proof of it is what you did at the cross, Jesus. You died in the place of your people to bring us full salvation, full freedom from our sins. And today, as we have taken the Lord's Supper together, we've thought of your broken body from a life of perfect obedience. We've thought of the shed blood and the price you paid to save us. And we're in awe and we're grateful and we're thankful for who you are and what you've done, Jesus. And we pray now that as we lift our voices and we sing, as we pray in these moments, Lord, that we would lay down all the things that we are so naturally prone to be slaves to, we would give them to you and we'd walk out of this place free, free in the salvation that you have bought for us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of these moments to now worship you in response to who you are, what you've said, and what you've done. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray and everyone said, let's sing together.